You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Why don't you go ahead and tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, The Bread of Life, Part 2. The Bread of Life, Part 2. Now, before we get into it, just a couple of things here. Uh, as mentioned, Life Groups is coming back around in September. So, please, hopefully you're excited for that. Amen. That's a great part of our community here at Plus Life, where we get to uh, live or do life together outside of these walls, outside of these uh, weekend services. And so, please, sign up for that if you haven't already. Again, we're asking that if, if you were already part of Life Groups in the past, that you'd uh, tell your Life Group leader or that you sign up again so that we just get a good head count of who's going to be involved in that and how many people we're going to assign to specific groups. In addition to that, if you've never been part of Life Group, but you want to be part of life groups, or you feel like God is leading you to, to plant some roots into this church, into Plus Life, then life groups is a good place to start at that. Um, sign up for that online. There's, you can find up all the information on that online, and also ask one of our Connections team if you need some help doing that. Now, in addition, hopefully by the end of today's sermon, we'll be done chapter 6 of John. Amen. It's been a while. We've been going through it this entire summer. I praise God for that and his faithfulness in that. But at the same time, next week, um, we're going to have my good uh, pastor and mentor, uh, Pastor Paul Tuck, come in and preach to us. Uh, if you remember, he, he preached to us back in May, I believe it was, and, and he's going to come back next week to, to do that. So it gives me a little bit of a break uh, to do other things. And then after that, we're going to jump into a vision casting series right after that, and then we're going to go from there uh, in, in the coming fall months. So we're going to take a break from John again, hopefully not too long of a break, hopefully not until next year, and then we start chapter 7 again. Uh, but we're, we're going to take a break from it. But that's sort of the, the plan, and that's the idea of what's going to happen in terms of the Word. Now, this morning, we are going to try to get into or try to finish off chapter 6. And so, as you might have recalled or, or as you might remember, we've been going through this, this, this great chapter of John's gospel. There's so much theological depth that is being preached here, that is being communicated through the, these, these sort of scenes that have been building on top of each other, this narrative on top of narrative. And as you might remember, it starts off with the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus um, has a bunch of people come around him, and he feeds, again, more than just 5,000. That's just, just counting the, the, the men, but if you include the women and children alongside of that crowd, it actually adds up to about fifteen to 20,000. And so Jesus performs his great miracle, displays his divinity. He, he, provides, he creates food out of nothing. Remember, multiplies the, the five loaves and the two fish. Then after that, immediately after that, Jesus sends the people away. They get on a boat, or the disciples get on a boat, and Jesus comes walking on the water towards them. Again, displaying his divinity, displaying his power over creation itself. There's a lot of stuff there to unpack. Now, as we've been saying, the disciples and this crowd experience a very similar miracle. They experience, first and foremost, a display of Christ's divinity, but it was also a very personal miracle in that, in the feeding of the 5,000, John specifically says that Jesus was the one who, who went and distributed the loaves and fishes. And in, when, when it came to the disciples, that was a personal experience or a personal encounter with the divinity of Christ. Jesus only displayed that to them. Now, 
after all of that happened, we know that the Jews came after Jesus to the, next, to the other side of, of the sea, and, and they were looking for him for, 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 for specific reasons as we unpack these past few months or these past few weeks. And our passage, or if you look back just a couple of verses from our passage, it says that Jesus knew what, was, what they were actually after, what they were actually for. In verse 26, it says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And he goes on to say, Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life. See, even after all of that, even after the things that the, the, these people saw, including even the disciples, these people were still after the physical food. They're still after the material. They're still looking for what they could get materially from Jesus. And we talked about this for quite some time, sort of the characteristics of these false Christians or these false disciples of Christ. If you remember some of these disciples, these disciples, and Jesus again does call them disciples. We're after a spectacle. They're after some performance. They heard about this news about Jesus performing this great miracle, and they wanted to see it for themselves because not, now the, the crowd has ballooned, right? There's, it's not just the 5,000 or the, the 20,000 people that was there at the feeding. And then, of course, some of these people, are, they're, after, they're, they're after some sort, of, uh, 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 some sort of physical thing, as we just read from our passage. They're looking for more food, and others were after their own potential. They, at, they end up asking Jesus, okay, if you're not going to show us these miracles, if you're not going to show us these signs, if you're not going to give us food, teach us how to do it, right? How do we do the work of God? How, we do, how do we do these miracles instead? And so... They're not getting, and, and of course, in the midst of all that, Jesus is saying, no, no, don't, don't pursue that, right? Pursue the bread of life. Pursue this thing that God offers. Pursue this thing that endures to eternal life, as we just read in that verse. Then Jesus explicitly declares, because, <laughs> again, these people were not getting it. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall, not, shall never thirst. This is one of the, the, the famous I am statements of Christ. One of the, the first of the seven I am statements of Christ. And as we started discussing last week, there is purpose. There is meaning behind it. It conveys a, a sort of facet of Christ's divinity and who he was, his will and his purpose while he was here on, on earth, while he, who he is even to us as, as present day believers. And last week, we started unpacking what Jesus meant by this. Remember, the context of this is that he's confronting this, these group of unbelievers, these group of disciples who were very shallow in, in their thinking and were only out after the physical, the miracle, they were looking for the material, all of these things. And so Jesus presents this I am statement, this I am declaration to address this. And as we discussed last week, this Jesus being the bread of life points to his pre-existence, first and foremost. It points to his pre-existence. The bread of God, remember he, how he says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, the bread that comes down from heaven, the bread that God gives from heaven. And as we discussed last week, that, discussed, that talks about his pre-existence, him being in heaven before him being on earth. It's the incarnation. It's, his, it's discussing his coexistence with God, that he is not some other deity in opposition with the Father, but that he coexists with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And of course, it also talks about his self-existence, that he doesn't derive his life from anything else. He is the source of life itself. Uh, the beginning of John chapter 1, it says that in him was life, and, the life, uh, and, the, and, the light, and his life was the light of 
men. It was a source. It's where we find our own light. Now, in addition to that, we discuss how all of this, him presenting himself as the bread of life, presents himself as, it also presents his purpose as to why he came. In verse 38 of John chapter 6, he says, For I have come down from heaven, him being the bread of life, right? Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, John's painting this picture that it's the Father who draws people to Himself, but it's the Son Himself personally who raises up people to new life. It's the Son personally who gives new life, resurrection life to people, to those who believe, and that's very specific, to those who believe in Him for eternal life. And of course, the Holy Spirit does His work of sealing believers as well. So, the bread of Jesus being the bread of life points to His pre-existence. It presents His purpose, and... And lastly, as we talked about last week, it proclaims his provision. It proclaims his provision. In verse 51, the very the, the verse right before our passage this morning, it says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats the bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Remember how I said that this this the, these I am statements is 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 depicting or displaying a facet of who God is, his character. And one of the great names of, of God in the Old Testament is Jehovah Jireh, the, the Lord, my provider. The Lord, my provider. And this, this Jesus coming down as bread from heaven is an example of God's provision, a provision of our salvation. Now, to continue um, this morning, we are going to continue expanding on what it means that Jesus is the bread of life, and, and specifically what it reveals about us. If last week was all about Jesus and, uh, Jesus and who he was, what we'll see this morning is that Jesus, the bread of life, tells us a lot about who we are as well. It reveals a lot about us, and so my hope for us this, this morning is that we would, as we unpack this passage, that we would be reminded of our need of Christ, that we were reminded of who who we have, what we have in Christ, that, uh, that without Christ, we would, as we will see, be dead in our sin, that we would be nothing. And, I, I, and my hope this morning is that if you are a believer and you have been wandering, remember the whole point in, in this I am statement of Christ is that you will not hunger, that you will not thirst again. And my hope this morning is that if you have been wandering, trying to find trying to find drinks somewhere else, trying to find food for yourself somewhere else apart from Christ, that you would come and find where true bread, where true drink is in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's the hope for us this morning, and, and, I, and I pray that you're encouraged by what we unpack for us. But before we do that, and before we get into our passage, can everyone say, just jump for me? Amen, amen. So again, let's look at verse 51 of our passage where we left off this uh, from last week. It says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now this is interesting because up until this point, up until this entire sermon that Jesus is talking about being the bread of life, this is the first time he starts talking about eating his flesh. All right, it's kind of weird, and he sort of just leaves a conversation like that. 
But then verse 52, this is where we really start to see why it's weird, right? The Jews then disputed among them, amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They were arguing, is, was, is, he, is he literally saying that we need to eat his flesh? Right? Or was this a metaphor? Like, was this a metaphor? Right? Like, they're having these arguments between themselves. And, and, and the reality is, if it was literal, it would be a big no-no for the Jews. And I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure for everyone else, right? Anyone else who, who isn't a cannibal, uh, so to speak. Uh, but he, here they are disputing whether or not Jesus is talking about literally, or he's talking about metaphorically, or symbolically. And this is because in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish religion, their entire faith revolved around three things the temple laws, the sabbatical laws, and dietary laws. Part of the dietary laws was first, and you probably know this, is they can't eat pork, right? And this comes up in the New Testament with Peter, right? When he, when he has that dream and God says you can eat everything. So barbecue is on the plate. You guys can, you know, after lunch, let's treat your pastor to some barbecue. Amen. Praise the Lord. Uh, but so there's that. It was also in Leviticus chapter 17, not only does it prohibit pork, and amongst other foods, it says in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 10, if anyone of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life." So no rare steaks for anyone, right? It, if there's blood in it, you've got to get it well done, bring it back to the grill, send it back to the shelf. So in the Jewish religion, they're hearing Jesus saying, you've got to eat my flesh. And they're thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. This is, what is, is he crazy? We're Jews. We can't even eat pork. How much more some guy's flesh? So, you know, we don't even know. And so they, and what's interesting is that Jesus knew, knew this, right? Jesus knew that this was a big taboo in their, in their Jewish culture, right? He wasn't saying this for no reason. And what's interesting is that, well, first and foremost, why, why Jesus is saying this, knowing full well, is that he wants to move the Jewish thinkers or the Jewish hearers of his sermon away from the Jewish mentality of material or, by, or, 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 the things, or, or salvation by works or doing things to get favor for God, right? The Jewish mindset was everything in the physical, Again, temple laws, go to the temple, offer sacrifice. Sabbath laws, don't do anything on the Sabbath, right? And then, of course, dietary laws, whatever you put inside your body. Everything was in the physical. In their mindset, to get right with God, everything you had to do was in the physical space. Jesus was pushing them, was urging them to break free from that Old Testament law mentality, that work mentality. And they were no doubt concerned about it because Jesus was, was telling him to do something. But I love, what, I love what Jesus takes, or I love what Jesus says right after this, right? It says, as we just read in verse 52, that they started disputing about this. Now, you'd think, you'd think, for sure, Jesus notices that they're disputing about this, they're grumbling about this, like, what are they talking about? Now, you'd think Jesus would sort of take it a notch back, right? Like, he would say, take a step back and be like, well, okay, guys, this is what I really meant, right? I wasn't actually talking about my flesh, right? Uh, but look what Jesus says in verse 53. He takes it up to a next level. He says, so Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's starting to sound like, like a Twilight movie, right? Like, what is going on here, Jesus? You're telling us to, now, to not just eat your flesh, but now you've got to drink your blood? Okay, Edward Cullen, right? Um, you know, Team Jacob. But what is, what's going on here? Now, I think it's very important. It's very important to clarify that all that Jesus is talking about is symbolic. It's metaphorical. It's, it's spiritual. It's not literal. And we see the context of what Jesus is saying here about eating his flesh and drinking his blood already, already, set, already set up as a foundation throughout this passage or throughout this chapter. Look back with me in verse 29. Verse 29 of our passage says, Jesus answered, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And then in verse 40, Jesus says as well, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son of Man and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then, of course, in verse 47, our passage goes on to say, or Jesus goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So the foundation that's already, be set, already been set in our chapter, the, the, the first ask that Jesus declares to these people before he tells them to eat his flesh and to drink his blood is simply to what? Believe. Simply to believe. And that's already, as we know, as we've been studying the Gospel of John, that is consistent throughout John's Gospel. Remember his purpose, right? John chapter 20, verse 31 these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. The whole purpose of John's gospel is so that his readers would come to believe in Christ. That's what's consistent. And even going all the way back to uh, John, chapter, John chapter 3, verse 16, right? One of the most, if not the most famous verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that who should ever believe in him, believe in him, should not have, or should not perish, but have everlasting life. John chapter 1, verse 12, he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So everything leading up to this verse in, cha- in chapter 6, or, or verse 53 of chapter uh, 6, everything leading up has been believe, 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 believe. But now Jesus says, right, whoever, whoever eats my flesh and whoever drinks my blood is he who has eternal life. So there's a parallel there. And what is inconsistent in, in, in improper exegesis of the text is to think, okay, John is saying, or Jesus and John has been saying, you, had, you need to believe to have eternal life. Then automatically, just from this verse, start to think, okay, now you need to eat his flesh and drink his blood to have eternal life. That is inconsistent with the rest of this gospel. Right? Are you, are you guys following with this reasoning? Right? It's inconsistent to start thinking that, that Jesus automatically started presenting a new way of salvation at the, at, just at, the, at, the, at the end of this argument or at the end of his sermon where he just told the people to believe in him. Christ is using, what's happening really is Christ is using the word eat and believe synonymously. In order to eat his flesh and drink his blood, you need to believe. You need to, and rightly so, because it, when, it, as, as we looked at last week, right, God says, whoever comes to me, whoever looks on the Son of Man, and then whoever believes. It's not just a matter of coming to Christ 
and looking and seeing what he's done and the good works and the miracles, but believing him. The idea of believing in, in the original Greek was to ingest, to take in, to receive the truth, to receive the, whatever knowledge, whatever it is that you have beheld. It's to take into oneself and to, 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 to make it a part of yourself. So Jesus is using this, this, this word, eat and believe synonymously. And the key verse to that is verse 35. Verse 35, the I am statement itself, right? Look at that with me once more. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If if that's not clear enough that Jesus is saying eating and drinking means you believe, you have faith in me, then, then what's interesting is that we can have a lot of issues and a lot of problems as a result of that. If we start taking it very literal, and, and the proof and the evidence of that problem is, of course, the Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist and transubstantiation. If you don't know what I'm talking about here, the, there's a Catholic doctrine, if, they, whenever you're, if you've ever seen them take Mass or they ever take Communion, Holy Communion, they're talking about the doctrine of the Eucharist and transubstantiation, where they believe that the elements, the bread and the wine, actually become the, the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, you might think that's weird, but they have a whole doctrine about it in their church. In fact, in the Council of Trent, one of the ecumenical uh, councils of church history, They came together, and this is what they declared. Because Christ, our Redeemer, said it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the church of God. And this holy council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ, our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Pretty wordy, but the bottom line is what they're saying is what they agree on is that the bread turns to Jesus' flesh and the blood, or the wine turns to Jesus' blood. When you take communion, that's what they believe takes place. Now, in addition to it, what makes that even more problematic is they take this, these, this passage from John that we just read, and they say that, listen, you can't have eternal life unless you take part of Jesus' actual flesh and drink of his actual blood. And this is one of the ways in the Catholic Church, in the Catholic doctrines of how you are to receive or salvation, one of the ways. Now, I need to unpack that for you all because that is a whole bunch of heresy, right? And it's so, it's so interesting. As I was studying this passage, I was sharing this with my wife, I was getting so frustrated how, how blatantly obvious Jesus' claims are here in our passage and everywhere else that he talks about his, his, his body and his blood. And this is why it's so important to have your Bibles, by the way, right? So that you can properly exegete the text so you can see for yourself the context of these things. So we've already, saw, we already talked about the context of what Jesus is saying about eat his flesh and drink his blood. We know that he's talking about belief. He's interchanging the words there, 
Another passage that the, that the, the Catholic Church likes to take and, and to, to push this doctrine is Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 to 29, if you want to read that with me. This is the Last Supper. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, to, thanks he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, as we just read from the Council of Trent document there, they take that literally. And they say Jesus was being literal there at the Last Supper, telling his disciples that this is his flesh and this is his blood, and this, therefore you must eat and drink of it. But listen, just read verse 29 right after that passage in Matthew chapter 26, right? The verse right after that says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So what's happening in the scene is Jesus offers this cup and this bread to his disciples, but then he partakes of it as well. So then does that mean that Jesus is also drinking of the blood that is meant to be the, for the forgiveness of sins? Does it mean that Jesus is drinking a cup to, to, to symbolically take in eternal life for himself? Or, to, for, or, or, or the cup that would ultimately forgive his own sins? But we know that Jesus is perfect, that he didn't sin. So there's a lot of confusing contradictions there about this idea that, that Jesus is taking this very literal. And we know for a fact that, that, that Jesus, and we'll see this later, that, that all of this is meant to be taken symbolically. Jesus is saying here, I'm not going to drink this cup again with you until we get to the new heavens, the new earth, the, to the kingdom. Now, what is Jesus really talking about here? Well, if proper exegesis of the text would tell us that first and foremost, they were celebrating Passover, the Jewish feast of Passover. In Luke chapter 22, verse 15, in fact, it says, Jesus himself says, uh, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's talking about the Last Supper. The Last Supper was the dinner, the, the Passover Seder that the Jewish people celebrated and, and feasted over. Now, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, sometimes we sort of think of the Last Supper as his own little thing, and then Jesus just pulls out a piece of bread and pulls out a cup, and then he does his thing, right? You know, this is my body, he breaks it for his disciples. But the reality is of what is being described at the Last Supper throughout all the Gospels is Jesus and his disciples performing, partaking, celebrating the Passover meal, the Passover Seder. Now, what's interesting, for example, when it does go back to the bread that, was, that ends up being broken uh, for the disciples, in the Passover meal, there is a portion in that ceremony where you take, there's three wafers for one, you take one of the wafers and you break it. And what's interesting is, in, in, and this is celebrated every year by uh, many Orthodox Jews who celebrate Passover, is they take that broken bread, they take the largest piece, put it in a cloth, and they hide it. And the symbolism is that, and the symbolism is that later on, in the, later at the end of the meal, they're to find that piece of bread, and then eat it and celebrate it that way. Now, there's no doubt. Looking back, hindsight, as Christians, we know, for example, that that bread that was broken is Jesus being broken, then being hidden away in the grave, later on to be found, later on to be resurrected. 
And, this, and, and you can look this up. This, is, this bread is called the afikomen. And so when Jesus breaks this bread in front of his disciples, it wasn't just for the sake of, I'm going to start a new tradition with my people. I'm going to start a new tradition with my disciples. He's breaking this bread as, a, as part of the tradition, as part of the ceremony of Passover. Now, in addition to that, in the Passover dinner, in the Passover Seder, there are four cups that the Jews drink from. Four cups resembling, um, sort of each cup resembling or being symbolic for the things that God did for them in the book of Exodus. And what's interesting is in the process of the Passover Seder, after the bread is, is, is broken, the cup immediately after that, the third cup that is drank or drunk by the people in that dinner is the cup of redemption, as according to the Jews. The cup of redemption. So this cup that Jesus is offering to his disciples, both in the context of Passover, is the symbolic cup of, of God's redemption of visiting his people. And it's the same cup that he is offering to believers, to his disciples. This is your redemption. This is the, the cup of my, the new covenant, the redemption that you're going to receive through my blood. That's what Jesus is getting at. In, in, this whole, in, in this whole Passover scene. He's not, ta- he's not saying it's literal. He's not saying that hey, this is really my flesh and this is really my blood. All of it is meant to point to the cross. And Paul clarifies that, in fact. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we read this every first weekend of the month when we do communion, Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord that I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he get given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the same thing, it says, this, uh, it says in the same way, he also took the cup and after supper, saying, The cup is the new, new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's not for salvation. It's not so that you can, you can internally or digest the flesh and blood of Christ. And in verse 26, he says, very clear, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the gospel when you partake of the Lord's table. It's not a, a literal taking of his flesh and blood. It is a proclamation, a symbolic remembrance of what Christ did on the cross for us, the body that was broken and the blood that was spilled for us. All of it, all of it, again, pointing to the cross. Now, it's very interesting, very interesting what Jesus says about the people who takes those, who takes those claims literally, who takes the eating of his flesh and drinking of his, of his blood literally. Look at our passage, go back to John chapter 6, towards the end of our passage of verse 63, starting from verse 63. It is a spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus is clarifying to the Jews who are grumbling about whether or not he's, this is literal or metaphorical. He's saying, the words I have spoken to you is spirit and life. Meaning it's spiritual, it's not physical, it's not tangible. And he says in 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus is very clear. For those who took it literally, eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood, is very clear that they did not actually believe. 
In fact, verse 65, it says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Unless it's the Father who instructs, who regenerates the heart, who who draws an individual to him, the only result of taking in these words of Christ is confusion. So they didn't understand, they didn't believe because the Father didn't grant it to them. Now, sort of going back to our text, going back a little because if we jump here, this tells us a lot about our situation, by the way. I know I just went a whole rambling rant about the, the Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist, but this actually tells us a lot about who we are fundamentally as human beings. Jesus being the bread of life professes our deadness. Jesus being the bread of life professes our deadness. In the very beginning of that passage from verse 52 to 53, 54, Jesus talks about, and even all the verses leading up to that, Jesus talks a lot about life, the bread of life giving us life. But if you notice in verse 53, he says something very explicit here. He says, truly, 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 I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You have no life in you. Not, not, it's not a future tense. He doesn't say, you won't have life in you. It's present. He says, currently, you have no life in you. Without Christ, you are dead. That's the biblical imagery used throughout all throughout the New Testament. You are dead. And even throughout the Old Testament, you are dead. How dead is dead? It's pretty dead, right? Right? The Bible isn't talking, doesn't preach about zombies or you know, the walking dead. It's not that. The Bible is very clear. You are dead. You cannot do anything on your own. You cannot desire after anything on your own. You cannot pursue anything on your own. You are spiritually dead. And we know that because of sin. We know that it's because of sin. Again, it's a fundable, the fundamental state of humanity being a baby being born into this world with a sin nature. They are spiritually dead. And Paul describes what that means in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. He says, it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And he goes on to later say in that same passage, Paul says in verse 20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We're just a bunch of dead people. Apart from Christ, before Christ, we're just a bunch of dead people performing dead works. That's why nothing, nothing we can do apart from Christ, apart from God doing a regenerative work in our hearts can amount to salvation. Just dead, we're just doing dead works. This is who, and in case you're thinking, you're sitting there thinking, okay, that's the people out there. Right? That's the people outside of these walls. We're Christians, right? Remember, this is who we were as well. This is who we were until God drew us to himself. Until God did the salvific work of regeneration in our hearts. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, Paul says, And you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we were. This is who we are. Apart from Christ, we are just dead. And this is why the bread of life was necessary. This is why Jesus had to come. The incarnation had to take place. Why his body had to be broken and his blood had to be spilled. Because apart from it, we would still be dead in our sins. Destined to face the wrath of God. Right? That's why we need salvation. And unless you need a reminder of that, we need salvation from the wrath of God that, punish, that punishes sin and sinners. Same way that we need physical bread, food to eat, to sustain our physical bodies. We need this living bread, the spiritual bread. We need Jesus Christ to give us life. This is the reason why the bread has come. And, 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 and this leads us to our, 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 second, our, our, second re, our second point here, right? Jesus, as the bread of life, pronounces our deliverance. It pronounces, him being the bread of life, pronounces our deliverance. Jesus, again, talks about how we need to eat his flesh. Remember, this is all about symbolic believing. And, and he says we need to drink his blood. It's only in our passage here, in verse, the passage for us this morning, in verse 53, when, when Jesus starts talking about his blood, there's no mention of his blood in the earlier verses, but now Jesus starts bringing it up. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. We went from eating his bread in verse 51, now we have to drink his blood as well. It's the same premise, it's all symbolic, it's all belief. But what Jesus is talking about here is his sacrifice. His sacrifice. It's not, it's not enough to believe that he is the son of God. It's not enough to, to, to believe that he came down to, to save humanity, that he is God's provision and all that stuff. But the same way that we need to believe, we need to ingest that, the bread of life, we also need to drink his blood, meaning we need to believe that his sacrifice on the cross, his atonement for our sins was sufficient, is enough. That's what this whole idea, the symbolism of blood is. Remember what the timeline is here. It's during Passover that this entire chapter takes place. And so the Passover feast is taking place, and, and, and if you know what the Passover feast recalls, is when the people of Egypt was about to be led out of Egypt, or the people of Israel were about to be led out of Egypt, and, and God tells them to take a lamb's blood and put it on the doorposts so that the angel of death would not visit them. All of that, this Passover feast was to remember the lamb that was slain for their salvation. And throughout the New Testament, we are told that in him we have redemption through his blood, Paul says in Ephesians. Since we have now been justified by his blood, Jesus' blood, he says, Paul says in Romans. And as we just read from that verse in Leviticus, right? For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. 
It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. It is by the blood of Jesus Christ that we have redemption, that we receive forgiveness. This is why Jesus is calling us to, in in our passage, he's calling us believers, true believers, to partake, to drink of his blood, to believe that his blood on the cross, his payment on the cross was sufficient to pay for our sins. It is the fulfillment of one of my favorite passages in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says, Come now, God speaking here, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Jesus fulfills this by his blood. It's by his blood that we are washed of our sins, that we are forgiven of our sins. It's the reason why we have the privilege of attending church this morning, the blood of Jesus Christ. It's why we can lift up songs of praise and have it be received and accepted by the Father. One of my favorite hymns, Nothing But the Blood. We should sing more hymns in this church. Great theology in these hymns. Nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And I love these other verses. For my cleansing, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this is my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can my sin erase. This this is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus being the bread of life and the cup, the, the, the blood that we are to partake in, to believe in, it pronounces our deliverance. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the consequences and the punishment of sin. Redemption from the wrath of God. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now all of this sort of boils down to this point. Jesus, the bread of life, pleads our dependence. It pleads our dependence. The disciples were disputing among themselves about literally eating and drinking the blood of Jesus. Again, they were focused on the flesh. They were focused on what they actually had to do to gain salvation, to be a follower of Jesus, the workspace mentality that the Jewish system had already instilled to them for many years. Again, Jesus is trying to push them, trying to push them towards the spiritual. And that's what he says, verse 63 of our passage. Once more, it is a spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Your works in the flesh are no help at all. The things that you could do physically is no help at all. It's only the Spirit that gives life. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who's those who were, did not, 
who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Bread of life is only given to those whom the Father wills. Remember in verse 32, all the way back in the beginning of this whole sermon that Jesus gives, he says that it's the Father that gives the bread. And in verse 44 of our passage, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Our salvation is wholly dependent on the mercies of God. There's nothing that we can add to it. That's what Jesus is getting at in all of this. Even after clarifying his points, even after clarifying his words, he says at the end of the day, no one can come to me unless the Father has granted it. And that's, a true, and that's true for us as well. Let's go back to that great passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 9. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. It's talking about us as believers. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, amongst whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were all dead at one point. And then verse 4, verse 4, one of the most amazing passages in Scripture. It says, but God. It doesn't say, but Ian but Elder Benji, or anyone else but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There is no room for us in that passage. It's all by God's grace, all by his mercy, all from his love that we are saved. It's not by our dead works. It's not by our attendance at our church. It's not by how much we give to the poor or what we ingest into our bodies. It's all by faith. It's all by God's sovereign grace, His mercies, His great love. It's all by Him that we are saved. He has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show His show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And here's the clarification of everything that Paul just said. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our whole dependence for salvation is in God alone. We cannot save ourselves we really cannot. And listen, if you're here this morning and your dependence is in yourself to be right with God and what you can do and what you can say and how you can act and what you can give and what you can take in, if that's you this morning, listen, you need to repent. You need to repent because you are explicitly saying that what God has done through the work of Jesus Christ, what Jesus accomplished in the cross and in the grave is not enough. That for some reason you think that you need to be a part of it. Our whole dependence is in God. Give me five minutes, I'm gonna close off chapter six. Amen. <laughs> Let's look at the epilogue of, of John chapter six, verse 
uh, verse 66. It says this, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now two things are happening here that we need to unpack. First of all, in verse 67, it says, when after these people, so Jesus clarifies to these disciples, right? All Everyone that's hearing this sermon that, hey, I'm talking about spirit, but then some of them, in fact, all of them leave except the twelve, right? And so Jesus turns to the twelve. He says to them, do you want to go away as well? What does that sound like to you? What does that sound like to you? You hear, you hear a sense of emotion in there? I hear sorrow in there. You have Jesus and he's, he, all these disciples around him, all these people that he just fed, all these people he's been speaking to in the synagogues, they come to him, they hear what he's saying about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and all of them leave except the twelve. How do you think a loving God would feel about that? This is a doctrine of the reprobate, where God, even though he sends sinners to hell, he does so sorrowfully. In the same way that these people are turning away from Jesus and abandoning him because of, his un, of their, because of their unbelief, Jesus says to disciples, in sorrow and in grief, do you want to go away as well? That is the heart of the Savior towards every unbeliever that rejects him. It's sorrow. We see this as well, in a glimpse of this in John chapter 11 later on in our study. When, when, when Lazarus dies and he goes and confronts Martha, but then Mary comes and it says that Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Because of Mary's unbelief. Martha said, I know that you're the resurrection and the life. I know that you know, everyone will rise at the end of the day at the resurrection. That's, that's Martha's faith in Jesus. But Mary just wept. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus wept because of Mary's unbelief. In addition to that, in Luke chapter 19, when Jesus comes to Jerusalem after the triumphal entry, it says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus weeps at the unbelievers' unbelief. He weeps at the sinner's rejection of him. That's the doctrine of the reprobate. God sorrowfully sends sinners to hell. He mourns the unbelief. So do not think for a moment at all that God in his sovereignty sends sinners sort of haphazardly without any concern, without any, any care for the sinner that goes to hell. No, it says in his word that he weeps for them. And he will do so if you this morning choose to reject him. But look at the disciples' resolve. I love what Peter says. This has to be it. This has to be the, 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 the pinnacle of where we need to be in our faith. But look at verse 68 again, what Peter says. He answered him after Jesus asked him, will you leave as well? And he asked the disciples, will you leave as well? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter got it. Speaking for the rest of the disciples, no doubt, but he, he got it. There was no one else that they could turn to for life. There was no one else that could offer them security and hope and eternal life. Who else would they turn to? Who else, where, where, who, who else, who, where else should they go? And I love what Jesus responds. He says, did I not choose you? Did I not choose you? He says, I chose you, even though you, you are the same disciples who moments ago in the boat, in the middle of the storm, were fearing because of your unbelief. You are the same disciples that I know, Peter, who will betray me at my crucifixion, who will deny me before others. Jesus says, did, not, did I not choose you? And church, that's our position this morning. If we have truly been regenerated by God, been drawn to Him, and God has done His salvific work in us, remember, recall, that in the midst of even the sin in your life today, the sins of your past, the sins of whatever you could commit in the future, God has chosen you. God has chosen you. He's chosen you to receive the bread of life. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, you know exactly where else we have turned to for satisfaction in this life, where else we have turned to to quench our, our deepest thirsts, our deepest hungers in this life, Lord, and you know exactly, Lord God, how much they have just left us even more dry and even more hungry. And yet we are reminded by your grace, by your spirit, through your word this morning, that it is only in Christ that, can, that our souls can truly be satisfied. That our hunger and our thirst for something more from this life can truly be satisfied only in you. I pray, Father God, for the times where we have fallen short and have returned to our left and to our right instead of just turning to you. Yet, God, we are reminded again in this word that without you, we are just dead. Dead in our sin. Unable to choose, unable to pursue you, O oh God. Yet out of your great love, out of your mercy and your grace, you chose us before the foundations of, those, of this world. You set out your plan, you set out your will to die for us on the cross. Even while we we're still in our sin, So God, I pray in this sacred moment that you'd return to us the joy of our salvation. That you remind us of who you are and now who we are 
in light of you, in, 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 in light of your blood, in light of your sacrifice, in light of your incarnation in this world. Remind us, O oh God, of, of who we are as your children, loved and forgiven, no longer bound to sin, no longer slaves to sin or the flesh. How we can live, oh God, a life worthy of you, a life worthy of your gospel, lifting up songs of praise that is acceptable to you, that is worthy of your glory. Help us, oh God. And I pray, oh Lord, for the heart that is far from me, the heart that has yet surrendered to you, the heart that has yet to believe unto salvation, the heart that has yet to accept you as their Lord and their Savior, and to accept your payment on the cross as sufficient, I pray that you would stir them this morning, O oh God. I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would truly put their faith in the only provision for their sin, the only provision, O oh God, for their salvation. Bread of life, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Lord, continue to move amongst your people. Bring about heart change. Bring about conviction. Bring about joy in our hearts this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.